0: Good morning, everyone. If you are new to our fellowship here at St. Peter and St. Paul's, a few years ago, we came up with a, a vision statement that is sharing God's transforming love from the heart of Ottawa. The purpose of a vision statement is not to say that we've arrived, but the purpose of a vision statement is to say that this is who we want to be. This is what we want to live into. We want to be a community sharing God's transforming love. Sharing God's transforming love. This captures the inward and outward movements of the Christian life. The inward movement is being formed by God's love. The outward movement is sharing God's love. God loves each of us. And the experience of his love is what transforms every other dimension of our lives, our desires, the way that we think, how we speak and interact with each other, how we use our time and our money, how we respond to difficult situations and difficult people. The triune God is in the process of forming each part of our lives from the inside out until we love like he loves. Our vision as a church is to facilitate this inward movement of being formed by God's love through our worship, through prayer, study, fellowship, service, stewardship, and then to share what we receive from God with our neighbors. Think about your neighbors for a moment. Who comes to mind? What does God want to do in their lives? Well, from Scripture, we learn that God wants to do the same thing he's doing in us, in them. At this very moment, the Father is drawing all people into fellowship with himself through his Son. He's preparing the hearts of our neighbors to hear Jesus calling them to follow him, just like we see him doing in our gospel passage this morning. Matthew tells us that Jesus was walking through his neighborhood— In his hometown, he sees Matthew. Jesus sees Matthew working in his tax collecting booth, and he calls him to follow him. Matthew responds, he gets up, he leaves everything, he leaves his career, he leaves his family, he leaves his entire way of life, and then he follows Jesus. It's a miracle. And this is precisely what Matthew wants us to understand conversion is a miracle. Look at the context of Matthew for a moment. Matthew's a tax collector. He's a very organized person, and he's particularly organized his gospel into different sections. He includes his conversion story in a section that begins in chapter 4, verse 23, and then ends in chapter 9, verse 35. If you've got a Bible, flip there for a moment. In the ancient world, they didn't use page numbers or punctuation or paragraphs like we do today to organize their thinking when they wrote things down. Instead, they used repetition, and that's precisely what we see here. Look at Matthew chapter 4 verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then flip to Matthew chapter 9 verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. They're almost identical statements. This is Matthew's way of saying everything that's contained within chapters 4, verse 23, to chapter 9, verse 35, is going to have something to do with the kingdom of God coming near. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount— where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to live underneath God's reign and rule. And then chapters 8 and 9 are 10 miraculous deeds, 10 descriptions of what happens when people encounter Jesus, the king, the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's come to heal the sick. He's come to cast out demons and calm storms. And he's calling disciples to follow him. The invitation to follow Jesus is on the same level as all of the other miraculous deeds of Jesus. For someone to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and to leave everything and follow him is a miracle. And the only way that it can happen is by the power of God's Spirit. This is what we learn later on in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16. Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter. Responds, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. What Matthew wants us to understand is that conversion is a supernatural work of God. The Father opened the eyes of Peter's heart to see who Jesus was. He did the same thing with Matthew. He's doing the same thing with us, and he wants to do the same thing with our neighbors the Father is in the process of transforming us by his love, and he's calling us to share what we receive from him with our neighbors. How do we share God's transformative love with our neighbors? Well, how did Jesus do it? Let's look at our passage, and I'm just going to make three observations about how Jesus shared God's transformative love with the people in this passage. Observation number one. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus is walking down the street of his hometown, he sees Matthew, and he initiates a conversation. He doesn't wait for Matthew to approach him. Jesus chose Matthew to be his disciple. In the ancient world, rabbis did not choose their disciples. Potential disciples applied to follow the rabbi of their choosing and to learn from them, similar to today when we apply to university or college. Only the top potential disciples would make it into these different rabbinical schools. But the Jesus school is very different than every other school. He takes the initiative. He chooses us. You know that you've been chosen by Jesus if you want to learn from him. It's that simple. And the one thing And one of the things that he wants to teach us is to take the initiative. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you are his representative in your workplace and in your family and in your network of friendships and online and in your neighborhoods. You've been given eyes to see what Jesus is doing and ears to hear him speaking to you. Jesus is always taking the initiative, but we are involved Like we see in Acts 8, Philip was led by the Spirit to come alongside the Ethiopian eunuch and to share the gospel with him. The Spirit was already at work in the eunuch's life, drawing him to the Father through the Son. But the Ethiopian man needed help understanding how the Word of God applied to his life. The Spirit of God is working in the lives of all of the people that we know, preparing them to hear this call of Jesus to follow him. We need to stay close to Jesus and pray for opportunities to come alongside those people that God is drawing to himself. Jesus takes the initiative and then he empowers us to participate in what he's doing. Observation number two, when Jesus reaches out, there's always conflict. Every time Jesus takes the initiative, and there's spiritual movement in a person's life, there's always some kind of trouble that emerges. After Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, Matthew invites Jesus and his disciples over to his house to have a dinner party with all of his friends. And while they're eating, Jesus is confronted by two groups of people, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. Both groups were confused about who Jesus was and what he was doing. The Pharisees have a problem with who Jesus is eating with. John's disciples have a problem with the fact that Jesus is even eating in the first place. Both groups are living in what Jesus would call the old wineskin. They cannot accept this new thing that Jesus is bringing into existence. Let's look at both confrontations for a moment. First, the Pharisees ask Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus responds, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. What is interesting about the way that Jesus uses these two terms, righteous and sinner, is that both Jesus, and if we look at the writings of Paul, they, they both reject these kinds of distinctions. For example, in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says there's no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Matthew 19, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, and he says no one is good except God alone. The New Testament tells us that we are all in the same situation. Every person is a sinner. We're all broken We are all bruised and battered by this world. We all can't figure life out the way that life was meant to be lived. And therefore, we are always in need of God's mercy and grace. So if the New Testament rejects these kinds of distinctions, why is Jesus using them here? Because he's about to burst this old wineskin. The Pharisees look at Matthew and his friends and they think of them as bad people as a way of justifying themselves. They do not see the bad in themselves. They see only the bad in others. Tax collectors were particularly bad people. Their sinfulness was evident to all. They were Jews who collected taxes for Rome. They were considered traitors and crooks for taking money from their own people. Matthew and his friends sinned big. Whereas the Pharisees see themselves as either not sinning at all, or if they did sin, they sinned just a little. This self-righteous mindset is what Jesus has come to set us free from. It's the kind of thinking that divides the world into bad people who commit big sins and good people who commit little sins. This is the way of the old wineskin. We justify our little sins comparing ourselves to others who sin big. The old wineskin stands on the sidelines, arms crossed, scowling and complaining while Jesus and his disciples are in the trenches trying to build relationships with sinners. The old wineskin says to God and to the church, you owe me. I've served you all my life. I have been faithful. I have sacrificed so much for the kingdom and now I want things to happen the way that I expect them to. How does Jesus respond to this kind of an attitude? He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We cannot receive what Jesus has to offer us until we recognize our need, our need for grace, our need for mercy. The second confrontation is with John's disciples. They come to Jesus and ask, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast?" and you and your disciples don't the pharisees would fast every monday and thursday jesus J- john's disciples are really questioning jesus's devotion to god but the real question is why do G- why do john's disciples exist at all the role of john the baptist was to prepare the way for jesus and john made it very clear to his disciples that they were to follow him however whoever these disciples of john are in matthew's gospel they were not listening to john they were stuck in the past they were focused on trying to live a holy life but they refused to come to the holy one to receive life the pharisees and john's the john the baptist disciples they represent the old wineskin so how does jesus respond to them Observation number three, Jesus has come to do something new. He responds to John's disciples in verse 15, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. The whole purpose of fasting is to help us draw closer to God. But in the presence of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, there's no need to fast. Jesus is saying the proper response to being with me should not be mourning and fasting, but celebrating and joy. Think about how out of place it would be to go to a wedding reception and say, I can't celebrate right now, I'm fasting. Jesus says the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. It is appropriate for us to fast on occasion, to help us draw closer to Jesus spiritually. But when we see him face to face, there's no need to fast. Then Jesus gives two analogies to further explain how he has come to do something new. He says, no one sews a new patch on an old worn-out garment. If you do, the patch will pull away from the garment, making the whole worse. And no one pours new wine into new old wineskins. If you do, the skins will burst and the wine will be ruined. No, you pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. New wine is wine that is still fermenting. Uh, A wineskin is made of animal skin. It was unthinkable to put new wine into a worn-out, hard wineskin because the old wineskin has lost all its elasticity. And if you try to put new wine into such a container, the process of fermentation would apply so much pressure to the skins that it would just blow up. Jesus is saying, I have come to bring you out of the old and into the new. Jesus himself is the new. In fact, everything associated with Jesus is described as new. He is bringing into existence a new creation, a new united heaven and earth. He's come to do new things among us and to make all things new. He has come to establish a new covenant in his blood, He doesn't just abolish the old one. He's come to fulfill the old covenant. He's creating a new Israel, a new humanity. He's come to renew our minds and to give us new hearts. And as we are filled with his spirit, we begin to sing new songs. Jesus himself is the new. And everything that Jesus is ushering into our reality is new. But he cannot Sorry, we cannot experience this new if we're clinging to the old. The old is waiting for our neighbors to come to us. The new is going out and meeting our neighbors where they are. The old is grumbling from the sidelines thinking that we are holier than we really are. The new is seeing that true holiness is all about taking care of others and building relationships. The old is trying to live the Christian life in our own power, strength, and wisdom. The new is surrendering fully to Jesus, who shares all that he has with us. Jesus has come to give us new wineskins and to fill us with new wine. He's come to bring us out of the old and into the new. The question is, are we going to follow him? We don't exactly know where he's going to lead us. We don't know all of the different challenges and difficulties that lie ahead. But we can be confident that however he calls us, whatever it is that he calls us to do, he will equip us to do infinitely more than anything we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Whatever he calls us to, he empowers us to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see through this passage how you take the initiative, reaching out to sinners like us, calling us to follow you. We see how you have come to replace our old wineskins with new wineskins that we might be filled with new wine. We invite you to come and do in us what only you can do. Line up our lives with your kingdom and your perfect will. Help us to be attentive and responsive to your love. And guide us to those you want us to share your love with. We ask that you would do this in your powerful name. Amen.